So if you do have um, a Bible with you, electronic or otherwise, please just have it open on that passage. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Uh, Father, thank you that um, you are present with us by your Spirit, and we have your word. And so we pray, please speak. Open our hearts and minds to your truth. Help us to not just to understand this, but, but to respond in faith. Please, Father, would you bring clarity to our thinking and believing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I suppose there are two ways uh, you can call someone a fool. Uh, there's the rude way. So you know how this works. You're driving in your car to work, and that person just comes swinging right in front of you and virtually pushes you off the road. And there's that silent scream from behind your windscreen as you shout out, you fool! Or if you're really angry, you idiot! And of course, you, you, know, you feel good because you've let it all out. And technically, you, you didn't swear, you kind of stayed Christian, you only called the guy a fool. But you meant it as an insult. But you can also call someone a fool... Because you've reached a point of such despair with the person that you have, that you care very, very deeply about. Uh, If you have had or do have at the moment, or one day will have a teenager in your home, then you know how this works. You get to a point of despair with someone that you care so deeply about because uh, you can see them making decisions in their life that are kind of, they're just, they're stupid. And you know if they keep going down this road, it's going to end in tears or even worse. And so when you eventually get to that point where you either say to them, maybe out loud or maybe even in your head, you say, you fool. You're doing it not because you want to insult them, but you do it because you care so badly about them and uh, care so much about them. And, and you, you kind of want to wake them up out of their stupidity. And so often we do that kind of, we call someone a fool because we love them the most. So here's the question. What happens when God maybe calls you a fool? What then? And I say that because at the start of the passage, as I'm sure you noticed as Rosie was reading it, that's how Paul starts off the passage. He says to these Galatians, Oh foolish Galatians! He calls them fools. And in fact, I think... That translation puts it, is too nice. Uh, One translation puts it this way, and I think this is closer to the mark. It basically says, you stupid Galatians. That's what Paul is saying. So, So think about this. Yeah, you have Paul, an apostle, one of the apostles of Jesus. So that as Paul writes and speaks, he speaks on behalf of Christ. It's a, it is as if Jesus is speaking. And he is quite happy to call these Christians fools. And God, of course, has made sure that Paul's words have been kept for you and I in the Bible as his word to us today. So you see, friends, God may very well be calling some of us here this morning fools as we read this. Now that's serious, because if he's calling you a fool, he's not being rude, he's not trying to insult you. But because he loves you so much, he's trying to wake you up. He's trying to shake you out of a stupidity that is taking you down a bad road. 
And what is the stupidity? Well, the only way to answer that question is to see what was it, what was the issue that Paul was dealing with in Galatia. And Royden has been telling us over the last few weeks that the issue in this letter is that someone has come to the churches, the Christians in Galatia, and is trying to convince these new Christians that if they want to be proper Christians, if they want to be complete Christians, then faith in Christ is not enough. That's just the beginning. If they really want to be one of God's people, then they have to become a Jew, they have to go through circumcision, and they have to obey all the rules of the Old Testament, all the, the Old Testament law. And in particular, in the passage we're looking at this morning, what Paul is focusing on is the fact that these false teachers are coming and saying, if you want to know the blessings of God, well then Jesus is not enough. You have to obey the law. And when Paul talks here about blessing, he's not talking about their cash flow, he's not talking about their health, or their next promotion, or that overseas holiday, or an SUV. When he talks about blessing, he means your relationship with God, being in a right relationship with God, being forgiven by God, accepted by God, saved by Him, blessed by Him. That's what he means. And one of the most precious parts of that blessing of being right with God is that you have the Spirit of God living in you. And so these false teachers are saying, if you want to know that blessing, Jesus is not enough. You have to obey the law. And sadly, many of the Christians in Galatia are falling for the lie. That they have in fact not been blessed. And it's because they haven't obeyed God's Old Testament law. And so Paul, he says to them, who has bewitched you? You know, as the Afrikaans people, wie toer met jou? Who's messing with your mind? And of course he knows it's the false teachers, but what he's saying, he's saying to them, who's leading you down this road? Why are you going down this road? Now friends, the reality is, there's nothing new under the sun, all of us can fall into the same trap. We can all too easily be bewitched into thinking, Jesus is not enough. Can't be enough. If I want to be, and you can use whatever word you might use, if I want to be a real Christian, a successful Christian, an impressive Christian, a worthy Christian, a truly forgiven Christian, a, a blessed Christian, well, then I have to add something. They're, they're kind of their levels to this thing. And I've got to keep working my way up. I've got to add my own efforts. I've got to add my own goodness. I've got to make the grade. Somehow I have to do something to be a good Christian. We can think like that. We are not immune to being fools in the way Paul means. So what does Paul say to try and shake them out of their foolishness? I think he gives three very clear reasons why falling for the false teaching is absolute madness, just plain foolishness. Three reasons, if you like, in the way that we as Christians can become foolish in our thinking. And firstly, he says to them, have you forgotten your personal experience of being blessed by God through the gospel? Have you forgotten? So look, read with me from verse 1b. 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, Royden has explained how um, it was Paul himself who had, for the very first time, taken the gospel to this area of Galatia on his first missionary journey, which you read about in the book of Acts. Paul had taken the gospel to them. He knows exactly what happened. He knows that when he went there, he had done everything in his power to explain as clearly as he possibly could what lies at the heart of the gospel, and that is Christ crucified, the death of Jesus. He says to to them, I was so careful about it, so clear about it, I'm confident that it was as if you saw Jesus himself hanging hanging just outside Jerusalem on a cross. You saw him on the cross through what I said to you. You saw Jesus crucified. So let me just ask you one thing, he says. Did you experience God's blessing to you, the receiving of the Holy Spirit? Did you receive it through the gospel and believing the gospel? Or did you receive it because you obeyed laws? And of course the answer is because they heard and believed the gospel. Paul did not teach them God's law when he went to them. He taught taught them Christ crucified. And when they heard it and believed it, they experienced the blessing of salvation, which included the receiving of the Holy Spirit. God had worked supernaturally amongst them. And Paul reminds them of this. God had worked amongst them when they believed the message of the death of Christ. People were converted. People experienced a radical change of heart towards God. They started to feel what it was like to to be forgiven by God. I guess for many of them, old, destructive, sinful ways already were starting to change in their lives. Their lives were being changed. Probably some marriages had been saved. Relationships had been restored. They had a real sense of God's presence amongst them and in them. And that was the work of God's Holy Spirit, says Paul, as he took the truth of the gospel and opened their eyes to the reality of Christ. God was at work in their lives. And at no point, at no point did it have anything to do with obeying God's law. Only because of the gospel. And so Paul says to them, are you so foolish? Do you really think... That if that's how you started and if that's how you experienced God's blessing, that somehow you can make, do better. That somehow there's more that you have to add. That somehow by, through your efforts, as he calls of the flesh, of obeying God's law and doing good, that somehow you can have more of God's blessing. God has even done miracles among you, says Paul. And I think by here he's referring to, uh, certainly in Acts, we read about the miracles that, that Christ does through Paul. 
as Paul goes out as an apostle to preach the gospel in new places, and the purpose of those miracles is simply to affirm the message that this is the true gospel. And possibly some of those miracles were continuing even in Paul's absence, but the point of the miracles always was to point to the gospel and say, this is God's word of salvation. So God has been doing this amongst you, says Paul. Why on earth would you think it is not enough? Why do you think that going to the law can add anything to that? Are you so foolish? But secondly, he doesn't just remind them of their own personal experience of God blessing them through the gospel. In verses 6 to 14, he takes them back to God's track record of blessing people in the past, from the very beginning. So he takes them back to how God blessed Abraham, which is a very smart move. Because Abraham, in the story of the Bible, is the beginning of God clearly laying out how he's going to restore his blessing to sinful people. And so the false teachers are putting so much emphasis on the law and obeying the law as the key to being blessed by God that Paul wants these readers to understand what role the law actually played in God's plan to restore his blessings to the world. So, so just notice, and we'll read it in a minute, but notice what God did when he went looking for Abraham to restore his blessings to Abraham. Notice what God did. Look at how God restores his blessing to Abraham. He preaches the gospel to him. That's what Paul says. Read with me from verse 6. And if you're reading from the ESV, just ignore the question mark at the end of verse 6. Read from verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. How did Abraham receive the blessing of God, the blessings of God? By hearing and believing the gospel, says Paul. He believed the gospel. You see, what does that mean? Well, it means that God came to Abraham and said to Abraham, this is what I am going to do for you. He didn't come to Abraham and say, this is what you must do to earn my blessing. I'm going to come and do it for you. I'm going to bless you. And not just that, but through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to do it, says God. And what happened? Abraham heard and believed. He heard the promise. He believed the promise. He responded in faith. And what was the result of that? Well, he was counted as righteous by God. God said to Abraham, you are now right with me. Things are right between us. Our relationship has been restored. Not because he obeyed any law, but because he simply believed the promise of God. And so from very, the very start, says Paul, the blessing of people, having their relationship with God restored, having that relationship put right, has always been and has always happened by God promising to do it and them receiving it by faith. It has never been by obeying the law. That's why, says Paul, those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham. That is why it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, from the very beginning, friends, all the way up until today, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, who are the people who experience the blessing of being made right with God or it's those who believe the way Abraham did? Who receive the promise by faith. It's not those who earn God's blessing by obeying the law. But why not the law? Why is that not the way? Why has that never been the way? Because, friends, no one can do it. Read with me from verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by faith. Uh, shall live by them. So notice the words that Paul uses here. He uses the word all, everyone, no one. Comprehensive words. In other words, anyone at any stage in history, without exception, who tries to rely on their ability to obey God's law, to experience God's blessing, find themselves under God's curse. Not under his blessing. Because, you see, the law itself says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Trying to experience God's blessing by obeying his law means you have to obey all of it. Perfectly. All of the time. In every situation. Without exception. Without compromise. In every absolute way. And no one, you see, no one in all the history of God dealing with sinful human beings has been able to do it. That's why Paul says in verse 11 and 12, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, it has always been the case that the righteous, the blessed person, shall live by faith. Not by law-keeping. Law-keeping is the opposite. You see, by faith means God does it, I receive it. Law-keeping says, I do it, God pays me. Now friends, that is why Jesus Christ is the absolute center, the crucial focal point of the gospel. This gospel that was preached to Abraham, the gospel that was preached to the people in Galatia, the gospel that is preached week in and week out here at Christ Church Midrand. Jesus is the center. Have a look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He quotes from Deuteronomy 21 uh, where God explains to the people of Israel How things will work when they're living in the land. And what the consequences are of breaking his law. Anyone who commits a crime under God's law is to be put to death. And then they are to be hung on a tree. as As a picture, as a sign that they are under God's curse. 
That is the consequences of breaking God's law. Death is the ultimate way that the curse of breaking God's law works itself out in the life of people. And it is unavoidable. The wages of sin is death, and the wages have to be paid. You can't just say, replace blessing with curse. It doesn't work that way. You see, the law itself required curse. Why? Because, friends, it is the curse that actually protects the blessing. What I mean by that is, God's law is good. God's law is wonderful. God's law describes the life of perfect blessing under God. It's the good life. It's the best possible life. God's law is a description of humanity living as perfect image bearers of God. Of people living, perfectly reflecting God's goodness and God's character. The law describes humanity at its absolute happiest. It's the good life. The problem is we can't do it. We can't obey it. And, and this life is so good, it is so wonderful, so precious, and so blessed, even the smallest blemish destroys the whole thing. And so you see, the curse is in the law because it protects this, place, this blessing. God will in no way, friends, he's not willing to compromise the wonder of the blessing. And so the curse is there to protect the blessing. There have to be consequences to destroying the life that God intends. And so, friends, Jesus is the only person in all of history who was able to experience his Father's blessing by always doing what his Father said. He's the only perfect law keeper. He's the only one who has managed to live in perfect harmony with his Father. But, says Paul, he became a curse for us. So Jesus takes onto himself the curse that the law requires of us for messing up the perfect life, for for disobeying God's law. God acts, you see, God acts to redeem us, says Paul, to save us from the curse of the law by sending Jesus to take that curse onto himself in our place. As he hangs on the cross. So that, verse 14, everyone who is in Christ Jesus, in other words, everyone who has heard the the promise and received the promise in faith, you are in Christ Jesus. You receive the blessing that God has promised to Abraham, that the Lord itself in fact promises. You have received that promise if you're in Christ Jesus. It started with Abraham, and as God said to Abraham, it is now coming not just to the Jews but to Gentiles. It's coming to people of all nations. It's come to the Gentiles in Galatia, it's coming to us here today, and it's coming to us through the gospel. Right from the very beginning, friends, God's track record of blessing people has always been through what he promised to do for them and the promise that he has now ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It has never, ever been through law-keeping. Never, because we can't do it. 
When we try, we find ourselves under the curse of the law, not under blessing. Okay, Paul, so then why did God give us the law? You can imagine the false teachers responding in that way. Yeah, yeah, Paul, we hear you, but God gave us the law. Why did you give us the law? If God did not intend for us to earn his blessing by obeying the law, why do we have it? Why is it there? Yeah, Paul, you might be right. Maybe he started with Abraham with the promise, but then he gave the law. We've moved on from the promise. Now it's about the law. Or at the very least, you have to add the law to the promise. And so the third and final point makes in this passage, in verses 15 to 25, is that the law of God does not cancel out the promise of God. The law of, of God doesn't even change the promise of God in any way. He uses the example in verse 15 of man-made covenants. He's speaking about legal documents. And I think in particular what he has in mind here is, is a last will and testimony. He says the principle of a human agreement, especially a last will and testimony, is that when it's been put in place and agreed upon and finalized, you don't go back and change it. That's not how they work. Now how much more when God is the one who has made the agreement, when God has made the covenant and finalized it and ratified it and settled it? God made the promise to Abraham, I will bless you and through you I will bless all nations. And he, he settled it, he sealed it. That's the promise. But I want you to notice how Paul puts this. Look at verse 16. Read with me from verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He's talking here about what we read in Genesis. And he says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, I've got two children, so if I talk about my children, I can talk about my offspring. So I can be talking about both of them, or I can be referring to just one of them. That's the way the word works, doesn't it? Offspring, it can refer to an individual or to a group of people. And Paul uses that word in both ways in, this, in these verses. God made the promise to Abraham and his offspring, meaning all of them. But Paul has already shown us who are the true offspring of Abraham, well, those who have the faith of Abraham. But then Paul says, but God wasn't referring to the many when he spoke of offspring, but to just one of Abraham's offspring, and that is Christ. So what is he saying? He's kind of stepping back again and he's looking at the whole story of the Bible. God's plan to restore his blessing. And he says, Jesus has always been the plan. Jesus is the offspring who would be the one who fulfills the promise that he made to Abraham. And in that way, bring, all, bring blessings to all of Abraham's descendants, those who have the faith of Abraham. Right from the start, friends, God knew that he was going to keep his promise to restore his blessings to the many offspring through the one offspring. Again, so why the law, Paul? Read with me from verse 17 and we'll read all the way to 25. Well, this is what I mean. It's always helpful when Paul says that because we've got to try and figure out what he means. This is what I mean. 
The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the Lord, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if uh, if a law had been given that could give give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law came after after Abraham at Mount Sinai. But, says Paul, the giving of the law... Was, did not cancel the covenant or the promise that God had made and sealed with Abraham. God doesn't do that. He doesn't go back on his promises. He didn't even change the promise. The law hasn't replaced the promise or changed the promise in any way. Paul says that God gave his law to act as, and he uses two words, two ideas, to act as a prison guard and to act as a guardian until Jesus comes. Now, we know what a prison guard does. A prison guard keeps you in prison. And he says the law keeps us under, under, under the jail of sin. And a guardian, I guess the word we would use today, is a nanny or an au pair. So in, in Paul's day, wealth, the children of wealthy uh, people would have a guardian, and that guardian would go wherever the child goes until they reached maturity. And the job of that guardian was not to be nice to the child. They weren't even there to teach the child. They were there to discipline the child. The child stepped out of line, bang, nanny got you. They were very strict, often very harsh. And so he says that's how the law functions, says Paul. It's like a prison guard keeping you in the prison of sin. It's like a very strict nanny just waiting for you to step over the line. It sounds like a very negative view of the law. But you again, you see, friends, the problem is not the law, it's us. He says in verse 19, God gave his law because of transgression, because of sin. God gave his law because sin was already there. It was in the hearts of, who, of people. And the, and the law can't come and change people's hearts. Uh, external law can't go to the inner person and change us on the inside. And so what does the law do? The law makes us aware of how much we need Jesus. That's what it means by it keeps us in the prison of sin. It makes us aware we are sinners under the curse of the law. The law is just there to show us every time we break it. The law is there, friends, to help us realize how desperately we need the promise. They're not in conflict with with each other. God's law is not in conflict with his promise. 
His law is there to make us aware of how desperately we need the promise. But you see, the promise has come. The fulfillment has come. Jesus has come, verse 25. The promise has been fulfilled. And so you, we're no longer imprisoned by the law. We're, the law is no longer our guardian, our nanny. And so Galatians, you foolish Galatians, why would you want to go back to under the law? Why would you think that you are adding to God's blessing by doing that? Friends, why would we be so foolish, you and I here this morning? Why would we look back at how we experienced God's blessing when we first believed the gospel? Can you remember what that was like, if that has happened to you? Why would we look into the Bible and see God's track record of always restoring his blessings to people, not through law-keeping, but by a promise of what he would do for them. A promise that has been fulfilled in Christ. Why would we see in the Bible that the law has not replaced the promise or somehow added to the promise, but simply points us constantly to the promise fulfilled in Christ? What makes us so foolish to think that Jesus is not enough? That somehow we we need to and even can Add to that, that through our own goodness and efforts and whatever it might be, that we can somehow earn more of God's blessing than what we have in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice in this passage, who are the foolish people in the world? Who are the people that are not thinking clearly? It's the people who are not trusting the gospel enough or in the proper way. You see, friends, it is faith in Christ that brings clarity. It is faith in Christ that removes the fuzziness and the stupid thinking. And so the the answer to foolishness, the antidote to foolishness, is to come back again and again, which is exactly what Paul is doing in this passage, in this whole book, to come back again to the clarity of the gospel. And the clarity of God's grace to us in Christ. And what he has promised to do. So the question is, are you this morning, are you maybe bewitched? Is someone messing with your thinking? Or something? Has something started to make you think? Jesus is not enough. I have to do something. There's something I contribute to me experiencing the blessings of God. Friends, are you being a fool? Now, what's at stake? Why does it matter? Well, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are someone who has believed the gospel, you know the blessing of forgiveness, you know the blessing of having God's Spirit living in you, you've you've experienced that, you know that. I don't think what Paul is saying to you, if that is you here this morning, that the danger for you is that you are going to lose the blessing and somehow bring yourself back under the curse of the law. That goes against everything he's saying in this letter. The very point he's making is that God does not break his promises. 
He does not go back on his promises. If, if, he, if you have received the promise from him that you're made right with him through Christ and you received the spirit of God, you can't suddenly lose all of that and go back under the curse of the law. God keeps his promise. But you see, what you can lose, friends, is the ongoing work of God's spirit in your life as he takes the truth of the gospel and begins to work in you and change you so that you experience more and more the blessing of living God's way. God does that work through the gospel and through the work of the Spirit in you through the gospel. And you will miss out on that if you are becoming foolish in your thinking and confused in your thinking and believing that it's my efforts, it's stuff that I do that earns me God's blessing. And it's not just that God no longer works in you, but he also will no longer work through you. You're not going to go and share the gospel of grace with someone if in your foolishness you're becoming more and more convinced that it's about what you do and your worthiness and your goodness. So that could be the case. But of course there's a, there's a more serious situation for some here maybe this morning. Because it could be, friends, that your, that your foolishness comes from the fact that you've actually never, ever believed the gospel. Maybe you've come here often, you've heard it often, you do religious things. But the reality is you have actually never received Christ as God's promise to you. As he's promised to make you right with him. That, that you are still convinced it is what you are going to do or have done or are busy doing that makes you right with God. Now, friends, that's a much more serious situation because if you have not received God's blessings to you in Christ, it means you still exist under the curse of the law. And what you desperately need is Christ. We all need Christ. No matter what our foolishness is, we need Christ to bring clarity in our relationship with God. I don't know how this passage applies to you in particular. No one else knows. Only you know and God knows. But I want to pray and help all of us that we would respond appropriately. So let's pray together. <laughs> Father, you know us. You know our hearts. You know our thinking and our believing you know whatever particular type of foolishness might be going on in our hearts right now, in our thinking. That in some way we've been bewitched into, into thinking that it's our goodness, it's our efforts, it's our ability to, to impress you that earns your approval and your blessing. I pray, Father, please, through the clarity of the gospel that you would wake us up from our stupidity. Cure us of our foolishness. Help us to see with clarity again the amazing promise you've made to us in Jesus, that he became the curse for us. He took it onto himself so that we can experience the blessing of being right with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.